But I was thinking about this parable this morning. I remember um, when I was a student, and there was sort of a Friday night meeting there was for some, for some um, Christian students at the university. And one night they put on an event um, with the title, Would You Invite Jesus to Speak at Your Church? And when I told a friend of mine that I was going to this, she got really impatient with me. She thought, you know, it's just, it's just like you Christians. You go to something you know the answer to. Because obviously you're all Christians, so you would say, yes, I'd love to have Jesus speak at, at my church. But the purpose of that night was to show us that actually when we look at Jesus' words in the Gospels, often we get shocked by them. And often he puts things in ways that we would maybe never dare to put things. That actually Jesus would say and do things in his teaching that would make a lot of Christians feel uneasy and uncomfortable. He sort of had that way of making people feel like that when he was teaching. See, Jesus' teaching in the Bible is provocative. And that night was sort of meant to help Christians see that. To see that actually that Jesus is a provocative teacher. He is the Son of God and he has things that we need to learn. And things that sometimes aren't easy for us to learn. And as we come to this parable this morning, I was thinking again, sort of broadening that question. Um, Would you invite Jesus to dinner? Or would you invite Jesus to a party? Because I was thinking what we look for in a dinner guest or a party guest. And generally, it's someone with good conversation, someone friendly, easy to talk to, someone who's maybe good fun and relaxed. And in many ways, the Jesus of the Bible could fulfill all those criteria. Again, he's a deeply attractive person in the Gospels. But another question we might ask about who we'd invite to dinner would be, will this person offend the other guests? Will this person say offensive things to the other guests? I think it's at this point that we might decide not to invite Jesus. Because in this parable we're looking at this morning, Jesus confronts two of the biggest taboos in our society and the society of his own day. And those taboos are money and death. Jesus talks about money here. And that's a difficult topic to discuss It can be embarrassing to talk about how much we earn or how little we earn. And it can be awkward for Christians in that that area. I know in the recent Amos series, a lot of us have felt deeply uncomfortable. We've been challenged by God's word as to how we use our money. And then Jesus talks about death. And again, it's just so obvious that death has long replaced sex as the big no-no in conversation. We can talk about sex all the time, but death, no one wants to talk about death. So by telling this parable, Jesus could be seen as offensive. And his story is pretty ruthless in its directness to us. See, Jesus never seemed afraid to use shock tactics in his teaching. Again, the context for Jesus' parable here in Luke 12 is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And Luke 9 verse 51 tells us the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. So Jesus is heading towards the cross at this point. He's on his way towards his death to fulfill the purpose that God has called him into the world. And Luke also describes this stage of Jesus' ministry as basically the height of his popularity. Again and again, we're told that huge crowds are following Jesus until the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1 there, if you look across. It says, a crowd of many thousands had gathered so they were trampling on one another. See, Luke is telling us here, Jesus was a hit Jesus was deeply popular 
to so many of the people of his day. His ability to perform miracles had attracted the crowds. His teaching and his authority had proved deeply attractive to people. But Jesus knows that the crowds following him is fickle. In chapter 11, verse 29, he responds to the great numbers following him by describing them as a wicked generation, which is far more interested in miracles than they are in Jesus. They're following Jesus because he does these miracles. They're not following him because they want to know him. So Jesus' audience for this parable is a large audience, and it's a mixed audience. He's teaching large numbers of people who know very little about him, And at the same time, he's teaching his own disciples as well. So he's teaching people who don't really understand who Jesus is or why he's come. But he's also teaching people who have left their old lives to follow him. See, Jesus has something to teach all of them in this parable. And it's the same for us this morning as we come to this parable. It's one of those stories of Jesus that might look like just an effective one for maybe somebody who's not yet a Christian to hear. And it's really talking about getting right with God, getting ready to meet God. But it comes in chapter 12 as part of some wider teaching of Jesus, specifically directed at Jesus' followers, at Jesus' disciples. So it's a lot to say to them also. So however you define yourself this morning, whether you're a long-time Christian, whether you feel a young Christian, whether you feel you're struggling in your faith, or whether you've never quite come around to trusting in Jesus. This parable has something to say to all of us this morning. So again, looking over the parable, we see that it's a shocking one, and it's an offensive one. It deals directly with money, with death, and Jesus doesn't pull his punches here. And again, we've already seen that Jesus is popular at this stage in his ministry. So actually, many of us, if we were in his position, would work hard to keep those crowds attracted, to keep those crowds interested in your message. See, how many times are churches tempted to soften the message of the gospel to keep people interested? I know in the youth groups I'm involved in, it's a constant temptation to me when I'm up there and just see the teenagers I'm dealing with. I just want to leave out the tough bits. I want to leave out the challenging bits. Just say, oh, God loves you. And the more people who come to those youth groups, the bigger the temptation is. But Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. He's not afraid to challenge the crowds, to issue stark warnings to them in the teaching like this story this morning. So at least part of the message of this parable is you don't know how long you've got. You could die tonight. Are you ready for that? Again, why does Jesus use shock tactics like that? I think we've maybe all heard of evangelists who try and scare people into following Jesus. And again, that really makes a lot of us uncomfortable. We don't like that. Why does Jesus be so blunt here, so direct here? I think the answer to that, we can see more broadly from this gospel, is that Jesus loves his hearers. He loves this crowd of people. And he loves them so much that he refuses to leave them in the dark when it comes to the fragile position their lives are in. See, a big problem in our lives, a big problem in my life, is that I can so easily confuse loving someone with being polite towards them. See, the polite thing to do 
as we already said, is for Jesus not to talk about money or death. The polite thing to do is not to talk about religion or God. But that isn't the loving thing to do. See, so often we interpret Jesus' command to love our neighbour to mean never offend our neighbour. We live in fear of offending people. We long for Christianity that is just gentle and soft and will never challenge people. But again, I think the danger of politeness is that we're most polite with the people that we hardly know. I'd even go as far as saying we are most polite with the people we don't really care about. Again, when I was young, family dinner times, they weren't that polite. There was a lot of talking over one another, there was a lot of arguing, and it would happen, but there was no doubt that at that table, the members of our family loved one another. We offended one another all the time, not always for loving reasons, but we did love one another. We weren't just polite with one another. And you see, Jesus here loves the people he's talking to. And loving someone can often mean warning them. His story is designed to shock his hearers into thinking what they're living for. He's challenging them, what are you living your life for? But that shock wasn't just to frighten them, it was designed to lead them to follow him, to lead them to get right with God. See, Jesus was prepared to offend people in his teaching because he loved people. And that is a challenge for us, I think, even just as we begin to look at that parable. Do we love the people in our lives enough to risk offending them sometimes? Again, the Bible is clear. We need to share our faith with gentleness and respect. That's a clear biblical command. We need to be like Christ. And he wasn't cruel to people. But he did sometimes offend people by telling them about God, by telling them of their need for forgiveness. So the challenge for us is, do we love people enough to be willing to offend them. But let's look at this story together now. What has to teach us here this morning? And I think it's one of those parables of Jesus that is almost better read without the title that's traditionally given to it. And Jesus told this story in response to a request from someone in the crowd. That's in verse 13. And a man in the crowd shouts out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And there were many travelling teachers in Jesus' day. And many of them also provided legal advice um, to the Jewish people. They provided legal help for people. So this man clearly hoped that Jesus would do the same. And he'd sort out this dispute he had with his brother over the family inheritance. So like many in the crowd, this man was following Jesus. But he was doing so, so Jesus would make his life better. He saw Jesus as a provider of sound legal advice, as a lifestyle guru, if you like, as a teacher who's worth listening to, so long as he delivered the results that you were looking for. See, this man's question showed that he saw Jesus as someone who could help him, but it also revealed this man thought that he was in charge of his life, not Jesus. He basically commands Jesus to deliver the verdict that he wants. He doesn't just say, will you arbitrate between my brother and myself? He goes, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He basically commands Jesus to do what he wants, to deliver the results he's looking for. 
He basically acts as if he is in charge of Jesus. And again, I think that is a big challenge to us. Do we ever treat Jesus like that? Do we ever presume that we are in control? That Jesus is sitting around waiting for us to pray to him so he can then spring into action and help us? Do our prayer lives presume that we are the ones who are in control? See, we need to be careful that when we ask God to help us, we don't fall into the trap this man does here. Because this man interpreted Jesus' willingness to hear him and to help him, to help him believe that actually he was somehow in control of Jesus. And we might today interpret the fact that God invites us to pray to him. God wants to help us in our lives, as somehow meaning that we're the ones calling the shots. But that is terribly wrong and terribly mistaken of us if we think that. Again, the Bible is really clear. God is the one who is in control. And we need to be praying for things in accordance with his will, for his glory, not for our own. So perhaps the thing that we desperately want Jesus to do in our lives will not bring glory to God, will not actually help us trust in God more. So God will not give us the answer we're looking for. And the question for us is, are we willing to accept that when God says no? When God says that will not bring glory to me, that will not help you? No. We need to be willing to trust that even when Jesus says no to us, he does know what is right. He does know what is best for us. So here Jesus doesn't give the man the answer he wants. In verse 14 he refuses to get involved in this family dispute and instead he uses the man's request to warn the rest of the crowd and his disciples of the dangers of greed. I'll just read verse 15. Jesus said to the crowd, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells his parable. Again, this is a, it's a simple story. And again, I think it is better to try and forget the title for a minute and try and just come to it as fresh as Jesus' original hearers did. Because at first, the man in this story doesn't look like a fool at all. In fact, you could say the man who had just questioned Jesus about his inheritance would dearly love to trade places with this farmer. So that this rich man... Um, he's described as a rich man even at the beginning of the story and Jesus takes up the story when he's about to get even richer. He's made his money as a farmer and after a bumper crop he's in the happy position of working out what to do with a bigger harvest than he's ever enjoyed before. See, a modern equivalent of that could be a company director who's taken by surprise by the success of one of his products. He doesn't know what to do with all the profits suddenly he's got from this product. So the decision the farmer makes seems to be a pretty sensible one. He's going to build barns big enough for his grain. The old ones won't fit it any longer. And then he's going to take it easy. He plans to enjoy the results of the harvest for some time to come. Now again, I think it is hard to forget the rich fool title. But if we did, I think we'd reach verse 19 of this parable and think, well, who could blame this man? 
for wanting to enjoy the fruit of his hard work. See, we're at a time of year when many of us finally have the opportunity to rest from our work and to take things easy for a change. See, all the money we work hard for throughout the year can now be used, some of it, to help us relax. We can go on holiday. We can visit friends and family. We can eat well. We can take life easy. We can enjoy ourselves, refresh ourselves. And I, for one, am really looking forward to my holidays this year. But you see, the rich farmer's attitude towards his earnings, it's perfectly understandable. And if we're honest, we'd be pretty sympathetic to his attitude here. If it wasn't for verse 20. If it wasn't for the fact that God intervenes here. Verse 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, it is God who calls this rich farmer a fool. Without his intervention, we might have called him the happy farmer, the lucky farmer. Without God intervening, without verse 20, this parable would be like a modern success story. You can almost think of the headlines, hard work pays off for a local farmer. A great British success story. The farmer could have shown off his new barns in Hello! magazine or one of the many property development shows seeing the extension work that he's been doing. Again, we would think this man is fortunate if God hadn't intervened. But that is precisely the point that Jesus is making. God does intervene in this parable. And God always will intervene in our lives. See, the rich farmer's story is only a success story when we leave God out of the picture. That's precisely what the farmer does. And that's precisely why Jesus calls this farmer a fool. When I was thinking about this, I was just struck by it is an amazing thing that the living God of the Bible, the God we've been singing about this morning, who reigns over the earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, actually allows himself to be ignored. He allows himself to be ignored by the people he has made. He does that. See, ever since humanity rejected God and rejected the relationship with God they were created to enjoy, God has allowed people to live their lives with little or no reference to him. See, a question I get asked a lot at one of the youth groups is, for some of the younger guys, is, well, why can't we see God? So they presume if they could see God, then they pay attention to him. And as it is, they struggle to remember him throughout the week. But again, the Bible says actually all of us have a bias against God. Even if we could see God, chances are we would not worship him in this life because we're still sinful. Because we still want to reject who God is. See, it's all too easy to live as if God doesn't exist. But we have to understand from this parable, the warning that Jesus gives us is that not seeing God is never an excuse for ignoring him in our lives. See, this rich farmer is held responsible for ignoring God. His life is taken from him and he's judged by God. And we need to see here that every one of us will be held responsible 
for ignoring God. And we need to take the warning of Jesus here seriously. See, why does God hold us responsible for ignoring him? Because it is the foolish man and the foolish woman who lives in the world that God has made and acts as if God doesn't exist. See, that's the thrust of Jesus' challenge to us in this parable. Will we be fools like this farmer or will we be wise in our lives? See, in the Bible, being a fool has nothing to do with intellectual ability or education. Um, and Psalm 14, verse 1, is the, almost the simplest definition of a fool in the Bible. Just read that out for us. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. See, a fool, according to the Bible, is someone who chooses to ignore and reject God. And scripture is clear. That is actually a moral choice every person makes to ignore God to live as if he didn't exist see there is evidence all around us that there is a God in the way the world has been made in the way that we have been made and put together as people and there was evidence all around this rich farmer that there was a God but he chose to ignore it So why is this rich farmer a fool? Well, he lives as if he's in complete control of his life. He lives as if he is God. See verse 16. How does Jesus describe this farmer's success? I mean, I said earlier we might naturally describe his crop as a result of his hard work. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he attributes the farmer's success to the ground. Verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. It was the ground of this rich man, not the rich man himself, that produced the crop. He might have sown the seed, but it was the ground that produced the crop. It was something beyond the farmer's control that made him so wealthy. But verse 17 shows that he fails to see that. He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. See, ultimately, Jesus is saying that this farmer's crops are not his. They come from the ground that God has made, so they belong to God. See, the farmer is a fool because he chooses to see himself as in control of his own destiny, when in fact it was God who had given him this wealth, and it was God who could take it away again. Again, can we fall into this trap? I think we can. Do we see our belongings, our earnings, all that we have is ultimately belonging to us? We can do what we want with it. It is ours. Or do we see it as ultimately belonging to God? If you choose to ignore God and to live as if all that you have belongs to you and you alone, then Jesus would call you a fool. We need to learn from the example of this rich farmer. God may well bless us with riches, with a home, with a car, with more money than we can spend. But if we forget to thank God for that, then we're guilty of rejecting the God who has given these good things to us. I think a useful definition of sin is ingratitude. Ingratitude towards the God who made us, 
towards the God who has given us all that we have. So what we need to learn is to thank God for everything that he gives us. Not just for the money, but for family, for friends, for jobs, for hobbies, for holidays. The Bible tells us that every good gift comes from God. And so it is right to thank God for them. And we can thank God for any of the good gifts he gives us. We can thank God for the love and support of a trusted friend when we need that. We can even thank God for the TV programme we've just been able to relax in front of after a long day. See again, Jesus is saying God is the God of our whole lives and we need to thank and praise him as such. So we have nothing that we did not receive from God. So we need to remember to be grateful to him and to avoid the foolish pride of this rich farmer. You see, the other big way in which this rich farmer is a fool in God's eyes is that he believes he will live forever. Or at least his life will continue until the point that he's ready to give it up. Again, in this parable, God tells the farmer that that belief is badly mistaken. And the result is that the farmer loses his wealth and he faces God unprepared. In some senses, um, maybe in the last few months, it should be easier for us today to acknowledge the fragility of life in the wake of terrorist attacks on London, um, in the wake of the fear that that has brought about in London, maybe even across the country. The idea that actually our lives are fragile should, in a sense, be very real and vivid to us. But in fact, it never really is. We still take every opportunity to avoid facing up the reality that we ourselves will die one day and Jesus is clear here we are not in control of when that might happen and no amount of wealth or influence can buy that control Jesus is saying we need to be ready to face God today we need to stop putting off till tomorrow or till later in life thinking there will come a better time And the challenge for for those of us who have not trusted in Jesus is very, very clear and stark in this parable. Is if you've never accepted your need for Jesus, never accepted your need to be forgiven by him, to have a new life with him, then Jesus is telling you, don't delay. Place your trust in Jesus while there is time. You need to belong to Jesus if you're going to be accepted by God when you die. I think there's also a message for those of us who do trust in Jesus this morning. Jesus is saying, we don't know how long we have in this world any more than anyone else does. You could die today. You could die 20, 30, 40 years from now. Jesus is telling us to use the time that we have The implication of this is that we are to serve the Lord with all the time we have left. For some of us that may be a very long time. For some of us it may be quite short. We are to use the life that God has given us and the time that God has granted to us to serve him. 
and to know him. You see verse 21. Jesus used a phrase here to describe a life that is very different from that of the rich fool. See, the rich fool ignores God. The rich fool lives as if he himself was God. But the wise disciple of Jesus trusts in God. He thanks God. She submits to God. In short, the Christian is rich towards God. Verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Again, there is a challenge for us here. See, Jesus warns us at the beginning of this parable against all kinds of greed. That's verse 15. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. But actually, he ends his parable by recommending the only type of greed that will do us good. A greed to know God and love God more in our lives. The desire to know more of this God whom we serve. The desire to love this God more in our actions and in our lives. See, we need to use our lives to grow in our relationship with God, with the God who made us and the God who through Jesus has saved us. And we do that through a life of trust and obedience to Jesus. So Jesus goes on in verse 22 onwards in the bit after this parable we're looking at this morning and he shows that God can be trusted for all that we need. God will give us the essentials of life. We don't have to run after wealth like this rich farmer does. Jesus is saying you can trust that your heavenly Father will provide for you. And it's important to note that sometimes God will do that Often God will do that through the practical care of his people. So we need to be committed to helping one another, to helping fellow believers in difficult circumstances, both in our local church and around the world. Ultimately, though, it is God who's caring for us. It is God who provides that person to talk to when we need to talk. It is God who provides that help from that person to get us out of that tricky situation. It is the God of Jesus Christ that we can trust in. It's our Father who will provide for us. We don't need to chase after wealth. What we need is to know this God. And how can we be rich towards God? Well, we have to let him speak to us. We do need to read his word and pray to him. It's not just an obvious thing again. People just harp on about it. Oh, pray and read your Bible. But actually, it is the only way we can actually have God speaking to us. And we need to be greedy to know more of God, to know more of the love of Christ. Just as the rich fool puts time and energy into making money, we need to put time and energy into knowing God. To devote ourselves to a steady, daily time to listen to God's word and be changed by it. It doesn't have to be a long time. The fact that we spend too long will give up hope. It should be a short time of us reading God's word, praying to him, so that we can sustain that day in, day out. But we need to listen to God. We need to let God speak to us and change us. And then we also need to seek to obey God in our lives. See, elsewhere Jesus describes his yoke as easy and his burden as light. But we need to take them up. 
we need to pick them up and carry them. And I know in my own life the most miserable times have been when I know I've been disobeying God. When I've been doing things or harboring attitudes that I know go against God's purposes for me. Or when I haven't been doing things that God longs for me to do in my life. See, the key to being rich towards God, to being happy in God, is to obey Him. Because that is the clearest indication that we have come to know Him and to love Him. So as we finish this parable, again, it's got clear warnings to us about how we think about the possessions God may give to us and has given to us in our lives. Again, Jesus is saying we need to cultivate grateful, thankful hearts to God for all his good gifts. We need to avoid living for those gifts, worshipping those gifts rather than God. Again, that is one of the biggest definitions, again, of sin. Worshipping the created gifts rather than the creator. But we need to be thankful for those gifts. We mustn't ignore God. Instead, we need to trust him. Trust that he will provide for us everything that we need, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And often he will do that through the love he stirs up among his people. So we have to be willing to play a part in that, to share the love God wants to shower on one of his children through our actions, through our welcoming, through our love for them. And we must use our lives to serve God. We must use the time that God has given us to serve him. Always acknowledging that we don't know how long we do have in this world. But the best way we can live our lives is to be rich towards God. Jesus is clear here. The best way to live our lives is to know God, to love God, to treasure God, and to show Him how much we treasure Him through lives of obedience, through lives that seek to honour Him. We began looking at this parable by saying that Jesus wasn't always polite in his teaching, but instead he is loving. And here he wants us to know what is truly worth living for. And it isn't wealth, and it isn't success. Jesus says it is being rich towards God, it is loving God and being loved by him. It is knowing God and being known by him. That's the wealth Jesus tells us to strive for. That's the wealth Jesus tells us to be greedy for and to keep asking our Father in heaven that we would know him and that we love him.